0: Amen. Before we begin, this uh, Sunday starts team camp, and this is the second time I forgot to wear my shirt, so I brought one up. Orange is the color this year. Live by faith. Lessons from Hebrews chapter 12. And so we'll get a week of Hebrews chapter 12. And you teens don't have your shirt yet. Is that correct? You haven't proven yourselves worthy. We're not sure if we like you yet, so you're going to have to earn it in some way. Okay, just serious. Second Samuel, chapter 10. Paranoia brought death. That's the title of this evening's consideration. I was going to entitle it, the stout-hearted versus the dim-witted, but felt that might be a little harsh, or at least taken that way. Uh, there are dimwits in this chapter, and they cause much death, and they were unkind people. These are the folks that uh, sent a message to those of Jabesh Gilead long ago and said, uh, we want you to subject yourselves to us, and we'll take out the right eye of each man, and we will bring shame on Israel. And uh, they sent to Saul, who was just anointed king, Israel's first king. And Saul rallied the men, and they went up, and they fought, and they were successful against uh, these people. But, and so that king, Nahash, apparently the same people, he had a common enemy with David, and that was Saul. And that comes out a little bit in the story when we get to it. But we're dealing with paranoia. These folks were too paranoid to receive an act of kindness, and they were too stupid to say sorry after committing an unkind act. And again, it brought much death. It wasn't like, oops, you know, just uh, sorry about that, we hurt your feelings. uh, Thousands of people died. These ancient events are in the scripture to teach us how to do life better. They're not just some archaic story with no value. There is a moral, there is a purpose for them, and God is very much involved. And so we are getting another act of kindness from David, an act of paranoia from these dimwits, and much bloodshed because of them, the carnage they caused, Uh, By, again, stupid people. It stands out. And so I repeat, the ancient events are here to teach us how to better do life. We're supposed to learn from this story. And there is much here to to learn from. The battles in the Bible are historically true, but they are spiritually relevant. Listen to this verse about King Jehoshaphat in 1 Kings 22 Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, the might that he showed and how he made war, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Consider the implications of the language alongside life experiences with these two phrases from that that brief biographical moment. The might that he showed and how he made war. The puzzle of life begins the moment that we forget that life is a battle. That it, we, are, we live in a war zone. Earth is a war zone. It doubles as an insane asylum, but it is also a war zone. It is not an end to itself. It's not, this is not it. This life lived in a war zone where there are no spectators. None of us born into this life are spectators, all participants. And we lose sight, if we lose sight of this, then we risk becoming bitter and fatalistic, paganistic, unbelievers. And so, again, that, going back to King Jehoshaphat, the might that he showed. Well, I want to show might in my faith. And how he made war. Well, how do you make war? You live in a war zone. How do you make war? How do you go about your life for Christ? And so it does matter. So as I look at these stories, personally, in my own devotional time, I say to myself, boy, this is how it is spiritually. Now, verse 1. It happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died... And Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. Then David said, verse 2, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. This is on the east side of Jordan, modern-day Jordan, the, the kingdom of Jordan. This Nahash, again, is probably the one defeated by Saul at Jabesh-Gilead. And the reason why he showed kindness to David is the link would be that they had the mutual enemy of Saul. But here again is David showing more grace. I mean, he was showing it to Mephibosheth. Where You know, who's, what descendant is, remains of, of Jonathan, my friend, who I may show kindness to? And he did just that. And now he hears that Nahash died. And he says, you know, this is a terrible thing to deal with. I'm going to just send my condolences through my ambassadors. Verse 3, And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you and to search the city and spy it out and overthrow it? Another palace in the Bible, stuffed with naive counselors and advisors, smug enough to give horrific advice. I mean, you're going to give advice to somebody. I mean, if they're going to ask, you know, what looks better with this, you know, blue shoes or or brown shoes? You you can give bad advice and they can just suffer the consequence if they take it or not. But there are other areas in life where advice can be very harmful for both. The person may receive good advice and not do what they're supposed to do with it. Do the opposite thing. Well, before we open that up, because I want to stay on paranoia a little bit, that is unfounded mistrust. We have no reason to be, you know, spooked like that. There must be facts involved, not just, you know, uh, your, your feelings. Paranoia creates a mess. It is a sorcerer. It creates this potion of poison that does nothing good. And this paranoia, this fearful suspicion without basis, is a rude brand of distrust. Here, the man is showing them kindness. And they're too unkind to recognize it. It's an unreasonable suspicion. And we should fear unreasonable suspicion. Uh, There sometimes can be overruled by a spirit of discernment. That has a history of being accurate. And so this contrast between uh, the kings. David is gracious and Hanun is incompetent. He's going to listen to these advisors. He's not going to challenge them. And he's going to lose everything. And so are a lot of others. Unfounded suspicion can wreck a life. Many, many a life. Lives around it. And that is a great part of this lesson, that it's not cute. It's not good for anyone. It's bad for everyone. It would be different if uh, they, again, had something to say, well, this is why we do not trust David. Satan's seeds of mistrust without proof were planted in the mind of Eve. When she was led to question God without proof. As God said, that was the first seed. You will not die. It's The next one. You'll be like God. All of them meant to hurt, to cause harm, to cause her to fear. To fear that God was somehow not being honest with her. To question his character. The devil got Eve to doubt God. Doubted his good intentions when he said, of all the trees, you can eat any one of them except one. Is that too much to ask you for any reason? I am God. I don't have to give you a reason. I'm giving you a command. You can eat any of those except this one. Well, from then on, life became the war zone that I was talking about earlier. And these princes of Ammon got Hanun, this king, to doubt this good king David's intentions. And then it became a war zone for them. Critical decisions should not be dominated by baseless fear. We all have concerns and we should approach it reasonably, methodically. Facts must not be passed over simply because something sounds possible or doable, you know, feasible or plausible. I mean, I could have had chicken for lunch. That's believable and it's doable. But I did not have chicken for lunch. And, of course, I don't know, I'm not very good at bringing up some examples sometimes, but that's the one I had. <laughs> and this... Uh, feasibility and plausibility, this doable and possible, that's not enough to make an important decision. You got to have truth, something that uh, has some teeth in it. All heresy has in it that which is plausible and feasible, that which is doable and possible. On the surface, it sounds good, And those who don't dig down deeper, they fall for the lies. Colossians chapter 2, Paul said, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Remember, he said, beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men. The basic principles of the world. You're complete in Christ. He's still telling this to Christians and they still don't believe it. Not all, thank God, but many Christians don't believe they're complete in Christ. They have to go to the world to find out how to be complete And it's not biblical. But, you know, you love anyway. I mean, none of us are dynamos or superheroes of the faith. We all have our weaknesses, but we must work to contain them. Paul, when he says, Lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. That phrase, persuasive words, in the English is a single word in the Greek. And it means plausible. Plausible. It sounds true without proof. That's what Paul was saying to the Colossians because the Gnostics were coming in there with all these grand ideas. Well, spiritually speaking, sin is not the same. And it just is stuff that was a lie. I mean, I can say something that I can say to you, you know, you can't put fire out with hot water. Sounds right. Fire is hot. Water is hot. The two together has, must make it hotter. But it's not true. Hot water will put out fire. And then some of you will go home and try it maybe. (laughs) It's like, I'll be darned. It works. So we arrive at our conclusions on truth and fact, and not just possibilities and uh, uh, the doables. Just because something is believable does not make it so. There's more to it. And that's why those at Berea were more noble-minded than those at Thessalonica in that they searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And Paul would preach to the Jews that were in Berea, and they would say, man, that's pretty good. Now let's go to the Scripture and see if you can back it up. Whereas the Thessalonians were, in in their case, they were uh, a little bit more ready to receive what Paul had to say, but it worked out. Well, except for the ones that cause trouble, of course. And so now we move on to uh, verse 4, knowing that as we're going forward, paranoia is not something we need to feed in our own lives. It can devastate any relationship. Not just a marriage, not just a church, friendship. Any relationship can be ruined if someone is determined to be paranoid. And if you've ever met someone who's paranoid deter uh, after a while, it becomes like their little pet. They've got to have it with them. They're not comfortable unless they're paranoid. I, that was my take on some of them that I've had to deal with. It's like, what? what is it going to take you to stop feeling this way? You've got no proof, no evidence for this, and you should continue with it. And it's destructive. Well, they can counter with, well, just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean someone's not chasing me. I mean, you could be paranoid and someone is after you, but no, that's not right. Anyway, verse 4, therefore Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. And without even considering the consequence, you see what I meant by, by dimwits? They didn't say, well, David's going to love this. Instead of making up their minds... They made up their feelings and they acted out their paranoia and they didn't mind acting it out on others, causing them shame to humiliate David. Again, short-sighted, not considering that he was not to be trifled with. Isaiah has this interesting thing to say, because remember, David is showing them kindness and they're too dense to see it too suspicious and nervous about it. You, you, you know, you, you, comp, you can't even compliment them. They think you're out to get them. Oh, he's just trying to butter me up. Isaiah 26, verse 10. Let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. And in the land of the up, of the the of uprightness, he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. He's stubborn. You can't show him kindness. He'll he'll explain thinks it's weakness or something, and try to just mess up the whole affair. There are really people like this, unfortunately. And every key on our keychain tells us that. Uh, You have to lock up your stuff, because uh, people can really uh, be a problem. And so this triple insult hurled at David... They slandered his motives, which was probably the heaviest strike at all. You know, so you're doing kindness and they they, they call you a liar. They attacked the masculinity of his ambassadors. Uh, If they had come as tourists, nobody would have mind. But no, they had come with the kindness from David. They humiliated the Jewish people. Well, they attacked the masculinity by shaving off half their beards. That was a big thing in their culture. The men wore beards. Uh, The price of razors just made it impossible. No, it's not true. Uh, But uh, anyway, Uh, the the Jewish people, of course, being humiliated when they exposed their nakedness, leaving them naked from the hips down. This uh, treatment of shaving uh, that they received, the cutting off the garment, was how you treated prisoners of war, Isaiah chapter 20. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. And so they're they're cutting their garments like this was to shame the Jewish people. Uh, This was in line with uh, Nahash, the king that died when he wanted to conquer Jabesh Gilead. He said right out, I want to shame the Jewish people. I I think part of the problem, just part of it, that Antichrist will have against the Jewish people is, is that they're not going to want to be globalized. They're going to want to retain their identity, and that's going to really uh, just fuel the flames of his hatred because we know in a world that wants to be globalized, you don't have a right to be a patriot, to love your country. You have to love this global monstrosity that they are cooking up, this uh, modern day babel. Anyway, it's about a 30 mile trek from uh, Rabbah, the key city of the Ammonites, where this is taking place, to Jericho, where these men will have to wait. Now, 30 miles, you've got to know they're hoping they're not going to see anybody on the way. Uh, How how, how unfortunate, you know, they're they're ashamed and I'm sure they saw people and man, what a rough ride. Verse 10, when they told David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. So David is sympathetic. I know, guys, a tough blow. I don't, you, don't, you don't have to come here. Just hang out there. And uh, I'll take it from here. This is an act of war. He can't let this slide. Uh, the next thing you know, other countries will be, you know, kingdoms will be coming against him. He had This cannot go unpunished. So the deed of grace shown to these dimwits at Ammon plunged the region into war. And it's a big war, not a little one. Verse 6, When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of beth Riab, the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Maaka, 1,000 men, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men. So there's a lot of people going to be on the battlefield. This is just one side. And a great many of them are going to be slaughtered. And this is only the first part. This is a two-part war. It says here, the people of Ammon saw that they made themselves repulsive. Elsewhere, the translators in the old King James Version used the word odious. It's closer. They had a stench. That's the word. They, we have... David thinks we have this smell about us, as <laughs> is kind of the picturesque language. First uh, uh, Chronicles, in the parallel account, chapter 19, when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, and there uh, they use uh, the, the same word, Hanan and the people of Ammon sent a thousand talents of silver to hire for themselves chariots and horsemen from Mesopotamia, from Syria, Maaca, and from Zobah. So they reached out all over the place. A talent of silver is about 75 pounds. Well, here they have a thousand, so this is a king's fee. This, is, uh, this war is already expensive. All because... They could not accept a deed of kindness. Now, I mean, there are times, you know, someone's maybe stalking you or something like that. that that's not paranoia. That You have grounds for, I'm um, a little concerned about what's going on here. But these guys, with nothing, brought all of this down on the region. And they're spending, as I mentioned, a king's fortune to hire these mercenaries to deliver them from this self-inflicted wound. And the one thing that could have saved everyone further uh, judgment and punishment and ultimately defeat would have been just, David, we were wrong. And they don't even try. They don't send ambassadors to David. They, they, instead of lawyering up, they, you know, war up. Everybody's, the war drums are beating all over the place. They don't even bother to try. They are dimwits. With no care, they think that they're going to win. The very thing they thought that they were avoiding by identifying these men as spies is the very thing they caused. As such, This is what paranoia does. Imaginary problems can become a real problem if one's reasoning abilities collapse. So if you think you're being chased by a giant bunny... And it's not true, but if you really think it, it becomes a problem, especially if you run out into traffic, trying to get away from the giant bunny. How do you advise somebody on it? You say, this is all in your head. Well, that doesn't mean it's trivial. It means it's a problem. Well, I'll come back to that. Well, I'll stay on it just for a little bit more. It's not the fault of the one who gives good advice... If the one who does not receive that good advice does something to themselves or someone else, Satan would try to come along and say, ah, you gave advice, but it didn't work because you didn't make it the right way or some other stupid thing. The individual is responsible. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 30. There are quite a few of these throughout the Proverbs. He says, they would have none of my counsel and despise my every rebuke. Wisdom is appealing to them. And and wisdom is appealing to their decision, but is not appealing to them. I hope I'm not confusing you there. Coming back to Proverbs, therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. So there in Proverbs 1, he said, you know, I've appealed to you. I've I've made this argument that this shoots down this crazy stuff you're up to, but you're going to do it anyway. In another section in chapter 1, he says and, I, "And wisdom will mock them. Told you so, but you just won't listen, will you? How many have, do you, we know people like this. They, they make a wreck of their lives because they just will not listen. It's so frustrating. Now, what are you supposed to do? You know, I mean, it's, it's, you pray, you appeal to God on their behalf, you intercede. And there's really nothing more you can do. You poke too much, you make things worse. Um, anyway, uh, bloodshed because of these incompetent counselors; these low-caliber people mess up everything. <laughs> I had an older friend years ago. He was fond of saying the, the, about people who were problems—they mess up the whole world. <laughs> it's hyperbole, but it messed up his whole world. Or if you were close enough to them. Um, verse seven. Now, when David heard it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Had David not sent his army, again, further aggressions would come his way. He had to do this. Uh, This was the army of Israel's mighty men, not David's 51 mighty men. This is the mighty men of Israel. Israel. And it is interesting, though, when the mighty men of David are listed in chapter 23, Joab is not named. He's, you know, that's, I, I think that was a zinger, was a shot. The, the historians, I'm not naming him. I didn't like him. He threatened me. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but he's not named, and he certainly was one of the mighty men. Anyway, why doesn't David himself go? Why does he delegate this to, to Joab? This is a big army going to war. He's going to do this twice. The second time, he's going to, it's going to, Satan's going to get him. He should be with his men. and He's not going. And I'm going to give a, a, a bit of a timeline to these events before we're done this evening. Um, if we're still here, before I finish. Well, a rapture could come. I mean, just, it really could. Uh, verse 8. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate and the Syrians of Zobah, Beth Riab, Ishtab, and Ma'akah were by themselves in the field. So we have two uh, forces that Joab and his brother Abishai are dealing with, they are the two generals. And the Ammonites are fighting near their city, Rabbah, near the city gate, so that if, they, if it's not going uh, the way they hoped the battle would go, they could retreat into the city. Then that would then mean a siege. Their plan to deal with the siege would be to send for uh, reinforcements, as did the people of Jabesh Gilead. When they were besieged by uh, Naash the king, they sent to Saul. And Saul came and bailed them out. And so that would be their plan. Whereas the mercenaries, as far as Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, that's heading towards the Euphrates, uh, they were out in the open field. So you've got uh, one in front of the city, somewhat in front of the city, and then you have the others exposed out in the field. And that's where the larger numbers are, the chariots. Verse 10. When Joab saw the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. Uh, Joab, his forces are between a rock and a hard place, as we would say. There was no way out. He either slaughter them or be slaughtered. He understood that, but the would-be slaughterers are the ones that have taken a tiger by the tail. Uh, Joab made the mistake of allowing the enemy to trap his forces, but the enemy made a mistake by allowing themselves to come up against Joab. Uh, He just understood war. He understood killing, and he is going to be at his best here. And not only here, later he's going to kill the Edomites, not this evening, but in other stories and other battles. And so he has decided, okay, they're in front of us and they're, you know, in back of us. We're going to have to attack our way out. Are not some of the battles in life that way? You have no choice. You either lie down and be slaughtered or you attack. You fight your way out. And none of it's pleasant. It is every bit of sickening and disgusting, but you, you, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, there are loved ones involved, especially when loved ones are involved. You, you, you're you going to fight. It says here he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And so here he is, this cornered tiger. He knows what he's going to do. He chooses his, you know, best fighters and he sticks them against the mercenaries. Believing that the those on Ammon, he'll take them. So he was outmaneuvered. Now, this is important. He was outmaneuvered, but he was not outmatched, and that is why he is going to win. Uh, He doesn't blink, and and this is, again, this is the highlight of uh, Joab. We don't see him uh, in this light. We see him killing again, as I mentioned, but we don't see him uh, just, I'll, I'll get to it, but without hesitation, he knows what to do, and then he does what he knows what to do, realizing that the The Syrians presented the greatest threat. He matched his best men against them, verse 10, and the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. Now remember, Abishai, loyal to David, a worthy opponent. Uh, He knows what to do, and he is doing it. He is listed as one of the mighty men of David. I I like Abishai. I like that you know, if you messed with David, he didn't take that mess. Lord, uh, David, I'll go take his head off for you if you'd like. He says at one point, when Shimei is cursing David and throwing up dust, is, who is this guy? I'll take him out right now. Uh, David, uh, verse 11. Then he said, this is Joab if the, speaking, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Why doesn't he say if there's too strong for both of us? Because it ain't factoring in his head. He's <laughs> like, there's no way these guys are going to beat us. He doesn't even think about being defeated. He just thinks about what kind of uh, adjustments he has to make on the battlefield ahead of time. And so he says, if you're failing, I'll come help you. If I'm failing, you come help me. But we're both not going to fail. No trace of him. Uh, Considering defeat. And you've got to admire this. Uh, These guys, this is not, they got skin in the game. They're going to be killed in a very ugly way if they can't get this together. Verse 12. And then he says this. You'll not hear Joab speak like this again, so enjoy it. Be of good courage, and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God, and may Yahweh do what is good in his sight. What if Joab had a heart for God? Well, probably not so many people would be dead <laughs> because of him. But he shines here. I mean, this is, he, say, be, uh, he, he tells his brother, uh, be of courage. Other commanders are likely in close proximity to this, and they can hear this, and they're getting built up. Yeah, Joab's not backing down. I'm not backing down because they're not paranoid. They're not, oh, we're going to lose this, oh, they're out to get us. Well, they know all of that. But they're saying, "You look, the other side is scared too. They're not invincible. His attitude on the battlefield is always one of overcoming. And, and that's hard to do, but it's it's not too hard to start doing it. In your head, Corinthians chapter 16, the first Corinthian letter. Paul says, watch, stand fast, be brave, be strong. Now, coming from, you know, someone who's not seen action, that would not be as potent, perhaps. And yet, Paul saw a lot of action. By this time in his life, he had suffered very much for Jesus Christ. And so when he says, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, he's telling you as someone who's done it. What is the alternative You're going through something and your pastor says to you, just be strong and let's pray. Well, what should he say? Be a little weakling, just lie down and let life trample you. And never mind your loved ones. Well, I hope the pastor never says something like that. Ephesians chapter 6, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, maybe you feel like you've been told to be strong by God, but you've already saw defeat in the past. Well, that's the past. This is now. You have to be strong. Second Timothy chapter 2. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. See, this is relevant to me. The battles of the Bible are real stories about real people in the presence of the real God. And they are recorded and preserved for me personally. As it should be with you. When you read this, you should say, this is for me. I may not need it today, but I might need it later. And so I'm going to keep this. And I'm going to understand it. And I'm going to give myself to it. In in preparation, I'm saying, I've gone over this so many times, I'm tired. Is it worth it? And then the Lord reminded me of a verse that he re- put in my heart many years ago when Satan was telling me, don't put so much effort into my Christianity. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That settles it. That doesn't leave anything else. And in, in some areas I struggle and maybe not be able to, to, to pull it off the way I want, but in other areas I can take this thing, and, and that's what I'm going to do in my life. That's if it's something that I know I can excel with concerning my God, then I'm going to excel. And in other areas, I, I have to hide behind the Lord's mercy. And that has been profound. He says, and may the Lord do what is good in his sight. Well, he didn't do that with Abner. <laughs> when David appointed, was going to appoint Abner the commander, Joab didn't say, well, you know, let it be the Lord's sight. He went and killed Abner, didn't he? Well, he could say, well, yeah, well, he killed my brother. Yeah, but your brother was trying to kill him. So that was just wrong. But here, here he finds faith and he never again looks so good as he does here. So we got to stay on Joab just a little bit because he was the butcher of Israel and he lived by the sword. He hacked his way through serving his king. There are some that might try to do that in ministry. They hack their way through ministry, insensitive to other people. I mean, now you can try to be sensitive to people and do the right thing and you're still going to hurt them, some of them. Uh, Not because you're insensitive, but usually because they're either wrong, thin-skinned, or sometimes it's just one of those confusing times in life where the devil gets in there and makes a mess of things. Jesus, he taught us about this insensitive approach to ministry. Jesus taught that ministry is not something we hack our way through. John, chapter 18, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. John, always so careful to give us details about Peter's mess-ups. <laughs> he, he, he was just, you know, uh, and we ran to the tomb and I outran Peter and things like that. It, it's kind of, it's amusing. Uh, I, I don't think John was being vindictive. I think he was just reliving the moment as it was. It was Peter, and Peter took that sword. I think that's how John, like, yeah, that was Peter. I don't think it was that at all. I think it was genuine. Uh, Anyway, Matthew, when he writes about this, he doesn't name Peter. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Well, that has spiritual implications, because there are those who take the word of God, and they die by the word of God and go to heaven. Uh, But here it is the physical. But Christ is saying, that's not how we do it. We don't go around hacking uh, people to serve our king. Uh, So Joab, he, of course, has this shining moment, but otherwise he did not. Uh, But here he is filled with the Spirit. Now, we in the New Testament, we talk about filled with the Spirit. We Wrongfully tend to automatically think that he's speaking in tongues or some. Not all of us, but some do, and that's not accurate. That sometimes it's true, but it's not. Uh, that would be a very limited meaning. It's much vast than that. He's filled with the Spirit here. That's this courage and this exaltation of of Yahweh. Uh, he he has the capacity. He can be filled. And this works against him because we don't. You know, why aren't you filled again? Uh, Joab, what happened? Uh, he uh, evidently, like Esau, he found the flesh um, more suitable to his dispositions. Verse thirteen. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. Well, he engages them. He attacks them. He's been, he attacks. He's just aggressive. Uh, but remember in his ranks are stout-hearted men. Men who could keep ranks, who could hold the line. Men who would not turn and run in the face of opposition. Men who are able to influence other men in the right direction. Gender is not important at this point because the sisters can influence other sisters in the right direction. And of course, we can influence each other regardless of male or female with righteousness you can you can encourage anyone uh, the word in season doesn't it's not gender specific you can be a man or a woman and give an encouraging word how many times uh, sisters have encouraged me uh, just uh, pastor I, that sermon ministered to me well that ministers to me back so i'll be expecting a lot more apples on my desk going forward First, First Chronicles, uh, again, one of the most beautiful chapters in the Old Testament because you have this whole army coming out to say, this is our king. And it is a picture of the church saying, this is our king. And uh, it's, it's, it, um, it's so difficult to get people to march together. And the Holy Spirit can do it. Um, you just have to have people who are ready to be filled. First, uh, First Chronicles th- chapter 12, verse 33. Of the tribe of Zebulun, there were 50,000 who went to battle, expert in war, with all weapons of war, stout-hearted men who could keep ranks. There are the stout-hearted. And then, uh, verse 38 of First Chronicles 12. All these men of war who could keep ranks came to Hebron with a loyal heart to make David king over all Israel. I think boys and girls younger believers they should have heroes you really should have someone that you you want to be like uh if you can't find them among people you find them in the Bible they're all over the place you know someone that you can identify with you know maybe you say I like Esther because you know she you know and the you know she she got to the point where she said whether I die or not this is what I have to do or maybe you like uh, uh, these men in in, in chapter the twelve uh, twelve of first chronicles. Maybe I want to be one of those men if If you have a problem with fear, one thing I think is very important is that you at least act brave, even though on the inside everything's on full along you're screaming're <laughs> you're, 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 you're panicking, but on the outside. Because it matters, It's contagious fear is, but so is courage. Courage, as we saw David with Joab, he says, "You know, take heart. We're not going to give in to these guys." Um, now, I'm not talking about doing things you're not capable of doing. For instance, when I, before I learned to walk, steel you couldn't fake it. You could, but you dead. You'd be dead. You just either could or you could not. It was not something you could fake. And if someone came and tried to pretend, they were going to be dead or hurt. So my point is, I think it is a plus that when we are, you moms know this. There are times you know you're afraid, but you're not letting your kids know you're afraid. They can't see it, but it's there. But your bravery is in you just, you know, putting up that wall, how beneficial it is to do just that. Uh, anyway, uh, the city here, when, verse 14, when the people of Ammon saw the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of, of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. So Abishai beat down the ones that were in front of the city. Joab took on the mercenaries. They both were successful. And then it says, uh, so, the, so Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. He terminates the campaign. But this is not over. Far from it. For now. Possibly they had too many casualties. Or uh, ran out of supplies. David's going to send him back. We get that straight out in chapter 11. First verse. And I have to tell you. The, the chronology. The sequence here in the chapters is... It's a nightmare. It's not even close. The historian is just all, oh, you know, now I think I'll tell this part. Now I think I'll tell this part. And he leaves it to us to try to, what is, where, who is going where? And so again, I'm, I'm going to try to give you that in a couple of verses. But first, verse 15. When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. So they're still at it. They did not just stop. You don't say to the Lord, rebuke you, Satan. And he just says, okay. Uh, Sometimes he doubles down. Uh, But God is going to use their stubbornness to reduce their military might in the region. He's going to just, you know, now's the time to purge this area of their strength. And David's going to do that. Verse 16. Then Hadadezer, well, we met him before, sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river. That would be the, the Euphrates. And they came to Helam, And Shobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. I mean, he's got a gallant name. It's one of those superhero names. And uh, stand back. Lois Shobak is here. But he's going to get killed by Davis' men. So here we have dead men marching. uh, All because, again, let's not forget the paranoia that brought about all this death. The unfounded, intense fear. Verse 17, Then, uh, pardon me, when it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, and came to Helam, and the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. So now David himself is there. He's not delegated this. He joins the battle, and he brings with him stout-hearted men of war. Now, uh, about this timeline. Now, you, you may research and find it to be not accurate. I doubt it. But, no, I don't. It's very difficult. Uh, but this is the best that I can do, uh, combining the events from 2 Samuel uh, chapters 10, 11, and 12, and First Chronicles chapters 19 and 20. So, David sends condolences as we started out this evening. His ambassadors go to Ammon. But they are abused. The beards are shaved, the garments are cut, and they're sent away. <clears throat> Ammon, anticipating David's rebellion, sends for Syrian troops to help. David sends Joab with troops of war to confront Ammon and the Syrian mercenaries, which, and they defeat them on the battlefield. Ammon retreats into the city. That's an important part of the story, or the timeline. Joab returns to Jerusalem. Ammon again sends to Syria for more help, which they do get. And then David comes to confront this large Syrian force of Syrians and those from Ammon, who are under siege. Uh, In the spring, uh, David then defeats the Syrians again. Ammon retreats back to uh, the city. But in the spring... Now, the reason why they would go to spring... And war in the spring is because it'd be it would be easier to feed your army. The crops are growing. You just go take somebody's field and you could just raid it. Or uh, there was it's easier. Uh, plus uh, the conditions. <coughs> pardon me. <coughs> just the, 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 the environment uh, better fighting uh, for for the kings. Well, so in the spring, Joab returns to the city of Rabbah where the Ammonites are held up. Now here's where it gets interesting. He's sent by David. David is the second time he stays back in Jerusalem. And while Joab has besieged the city, David sins with Bathsheba. And then, of course, to cover his you know, when Bathsheba says, "I'm with child." Remember, now all of these events are taking time. When they said, "We're going to give you seventy-five pounds a uh, thousand uh, talents of silver," it's going to take days to to load it up, to trek it over there, and then to get the armies ready, the food ready for them, the animals necessary. So this is a drawn-out thing. It takes us ten minutes to read it in a chapter, but. Many days, weeks, and even months are going by, and even a whole season here. So, Joab besieges Rabbah the city. David is in Jerusalem. He sins with Bathsheba. She's with child. David wants to bring Uriah, her husband, back to Jerusalem so that he can cover his sin. But Uriah such a noble, he is one of the mighty men of David too. He's such a noble character. He says, there's no way my comrades are sleeping under the stars. I'm not going to come home and just, you know, enjoy myself. And so he does not. David, his, the, the sin has just engulfed him by this point. And he just says, fine, take this note to Joab. And in the note, it is his death warrant, the death sentence for Uriah. He says, I want you to attack the city. And I want you to put uh, Uriah up front. And Joab knows he gets this. This is a hit. He, he's going to kill him. And Joab, loyal to David, is going to do whatever he Plus, if there's blood to be shed, <laughs> Joab's going to have his hand in it. He's almost psychotic. Anyhow, uh, Joab uh, puts him up front. Uriah is killed in action. Joab takes the water supply to the city, sends to David, David, you better come down and take the city, otherwise it's going to be named after Joab. And Joab really wasn't interested in that. He's loyal to David. David comes down, they, they take the city. And then they all pack up and go back to Jerusalem. All of these people that gave him a hard time are either dead or now paying David money. Then Nathan confronts David you're not going to get that timeline by just reading through the chapters. You'll have to put it together. Um, of course, I have my scriptural cross-references to why I get to where I've gotten, but that's how it unfolds. All of this war, these two episodes with the Syrians because of these uh, dimwits. Verse 18. Then S- the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers, 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians, and struck Shobak, the commander of their army, who died there. Now, when I went through these chapters before, I spent time on dealing with some of the discrepancies, numerical uh, disagreements, where Chronicles would say this many, and Samuel would say this many. There are, uh, if you read enough commentaries, you're probably going to find one that that gets it and gives you a good reason for what's going on. And I'm not going to go into it this time. Uh, Suffice it to say that I don't think there are the discrepancies that people think there are. There are different ways to count them. There are different battles going on, and that will account for it. In some other areas, it is quite challenging, and it does look like a discrepancy. But uh, for me, the jury is out. Uh, because so many problematic verses in the Bible in time get solved. And in fact, that <clears throat> it's at such a rate that y- y- you be very it's very easy to trust God's word uh, when you look at it that way. Anyway, uh, just like that, in the day of war, 700 charioteers, 40,000 horsemen dead. That's not counting infantry. You know there's infantry. You're not going to send in. You've got to have sandals on the ground. There is no fool like an old fool. Yet, a young fool can cause a lot of carnage. And, and this is what the Bible is telling us. That those who had no reason to act maliciously in fear never even considered repenting. Genesis, well, the question is, where is it written that stupid people can menace so many other people's lives? And where is that written? Why is it that way? Well, we know Genesis, is two places I'm going to go with this. Romans and Genesis. 1st Genesis, chapter 2, verse 12. This is verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, you know, God knew they were going to fail. And you say, well, why did he let them fail? Because there's no other way. There is no other way for love to exist without free will. If I, I reject categorically this Calvinistic teaching that God forces people into heaven. Now, you're going to heaven and you're going to hell and that's that. And that's bottom line Calvinism. There's no way around it. That's the, They don't want to tell you that right now. You have to press them to get that. I think God knows who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, but it's not the cause. And he gives, he wants people, because there's no such thing without, of, there's no such love. Thing is love without free will. It's a hostage situation. You're going to love me, Alice. I don't care. If I can't have you, nobody's going to have you. And I, I'm, I'm, many great Bible teachers line up on the Calvinistic side. It's been ordained from the foundation of the world that they're going to be wrong on this point. Still brothers and sisters of the Lord. nobody I'm not questioning their salvation. I just strongly disagree with them. And uh, anyway, so God is saying, I'm going to have a, a kingdom with people who had a choice to love me under fire or not. I won't have the or-nots. I'll have the wills. And that's Genesis 2. I'm going to put this tree here. And I know you're going to mess up. But I'm still going to give you a chance after you mess up. In fact, the phrase that I've been using a lot recently. In fact, God says, I'm going to put skin in the game. I'm going to die for those who want me. So Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as... Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. And then Paul goes on to say, also by one man, salvation, grace has come. And so, uh, the, the answer, where is it written that stupid people get to menace the lives of decent people? Well, there it is. In Genesis and in Romans. And our performance is being measured. How are we going to respond to this war zone that we are born into, this wrong kingdom that we're born into, that we had no say-so in being born into, we're still held accountable for what we do with what God says. And that is called faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. You don't have to like it, but it's a fact. There are too many truths in Scripture to ignore. And uh, to be so afraid that you cannot embrace God's promises is the worst paranoia of all. And so God, in the end, in Revelation, he says, cowards will not enter the kingdom. What kind of cowards? Somebody running from a a problem in life? No. Those who are too afraid to commit to God in in the face of all of the truths that are astounding. And for us... Perhaps the cleanest proof that God's word is true in our lifetime is the nation Israel. It's just too many prophecies surrounding it to say to the Bible, I can't trust you. You would have to be cowardly to look at the scripture in light of all the evidence and still deny God. And then fit into that category in the last chapter of the revelation. And so paranoia is no joke. Uh, It is fear Making the decisions. And God expects much more from us than to just let fear dictate uh, these things to us. And so the apostle John said, perfect love cast out fear. He was a man that suffered for the kingdom. He was a man that was sent to the Isle of Patmos where they thought they could remove him from influencing. And what does he get? The revelation of Jesus Christ to John the, the apostle. And they just made it worse for hell. How many countless people are going to be in heaven? Well, not countless to God, but to us, are going to be in heaven simply because they trusted what God said, because they knew it was true. I think for me, the biggest element of faith is that I have met God. He has spoken to my heart. He has introduced himself to my heart. And uh, there's nothing I can do about that. And I will not say that that did not happen. In an instant, I knew Jesus Christ was right about everything, and I was not. Oh, I could tell you a color shirt I was wearing, maybe, but I could not tell you anything about uh, the, the creation of God, uh, sin and humans and salvations. I submitted instantly to him, and so have you who, are, who have been born again. Verse 19, And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them, so the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. <laughs> so uh, that's how we know the city sat by itself, when, one of the reasons. And Joab besieged it. We'll get that first verse next chapter, uh, because the Assyrian says, we can't beat David. And they ended up uh, paying tribute to him, David conquering as far as the Euphrates and, and um, so, and what else was David doing with all of these things? He was still gathering treasure for the building of God's house. What, what a way to live, to live in such a way that your victories on the battlefield are going to be given to God in some way. Uh, it's not a fundraising statement. It's that uh, you have a life in David centered so much so that when it comes time for David to die and he's handing over the reins of Solomon, he is so into it. He's in Solomon. I made this temple. I saved for it with all my might. I want you to watch it. Be a man. Be a king. He's into it right up to the end. You, you really can't miss it as you read it. Anyway, uh, I close with this verse, First Kings chapter 11. Verse 36, God's saying this about David, because we know he's going to sin. It's coming next. We know he's going to fall into darkness uh, morally, never spiritually. (laughs) Sorry, the guy that's still trying to talk while he's coughing. Uh, He never falls into idolatry. He never gets confused about who God is. He just becomes a victim of his his flesh. And that's not trivializing because he paid and so did others. And he does it more than once because he has that whole thing with numbering the people we get to. But he, that's coming. So here's the verse I want to close with. This is after David's death. Sometimes after near Solomon's death. Um, my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. And so my point is... When uh, it's all said and done, God is just uh, bragging on David nonetheless. And we know why, because David won the spiritual war. Uh, Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, your lessons, they just fly off the pages. The tricky part for us is to do something with them, to act upon them. It's very beneficial, Lord. It's a long drawn out knockdown fight this life to serve you in a way that brings glory to you and even joy to others, and yet uh, by your will we can we can do these things. May you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus name. Amen.